Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 169. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 169 you're listening to. My guest today is Ryan Worsley. Ryan, of course, comes from Coquitlam, British Columbia. That's in Canada, for those of you geographically challenged. And uh, Ryan has been on the show before. He was on the episode that uh, was called the Mix with the Masters Attendees episode. That was last summer. And he made a brief appearance on there, just like everybody that was there. And that was where I just uh, spoke a little bit with every person who was there at Mix with the Masters uh, for Chad Blake's class with me. I fully intended on having Ryan come back. So here he is today. Ryan is back with us for a full interview. Yeah. Producer, engineer, a mixer, and uh, owner of Echo Plant Sound. That's at echoplantsound.com. So be sure and check that out. So yeah, Ryan Worsley coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So, you know, we always talk about gear lust and how to handle that on the show and uh, buying stuff that we don't necessarily need. And I have a confession to make. I recently did that. And this is really one of the first times in recent history that I remember buying something and then regretting it uh, once it arrived. And here was the situation. I'll explain it to you. I'll do a little confession here. So I, uh, I have a client. He recorded some, uh, he recorded a song with uh, a gentleman, a drummer. And I'll just tell you, the, the drum part was not good. The recording of the drums themselves was not good. You know, I could get over a bad recording. I could, you know, work my way around that. But just the whole thing was just having problems from the beginning. So I talked to the guy, talked to my client, and he said, well, you know, I really don't want to put too much money into, into retracking the song, if that's what we're talking about. And and I said, well, let me see what I can do with it. You know, I've we've we've gone a couple rounds with it, and it's just not right. So uh, I thought, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll just buy uh, an electronic drum pad, like a like a octopad type thing, and uh, maybe I'll get a kick pedal and a hi hat controller, and then I'll get uh, Stephen Slate drums or something, and uh, I'll just replay the part here in in my mixing and mastering room. So. I jumped on uh, the internet and bought a used hi-hat pedal, uh, bought a new kick pedal, bought a used uh, Alesis control pad. And the hi-hat pedal showed up, the control pad showed up. And as I was getting it set up, I realized the hi-hat pedal was uh, not going to work in the way that I wanted it to with the pad. And then I started to get second thoughts about the whole thing. And I realized, you know what? I'm going to have to get a different setup to make this work. And then I started finding myself on the internet, looking at the stuff all over again and uh, thinking, okay, well, I can spend more money and get this. And then it just hit me. I just thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to buy this shit. So I decided this is not my problem. If he wants to retract the song, great. If he doesn't, I'll work with what he has. But I am not going to dump all this money into this to save the day because in the end, I just don't feel like it's going to make that big of an impact 
in the bigger picture of things. So I started listing the stuff uh, for sale, the used stuff that I bought. I did buy some of the stuff used. So I list, listed the hi-hat pedal. I'm going to list the uh, the Alesis control pad and just get my money back. And then the stuff that I bought new, I'm just going to return to uh, to where I bought it. So yeah, I, I really just, I, I thought, oh my God, I got to confess to to my listeners what I did here because I'm always preaching this, you know, don't buy stuff you don't need. Well, uh, you know, it happens to the best of us. So that is m my confession for the day. I, uh, I bought this stuff. I'm going to return it, get my money back. Everything's going to be fine. I didn't go in too deep. So that's the good news. But I just felt like, uh, I don't know, I was taking a walk one day and that's, I'm going to transition to that in a minute. I'll tell you about that. And I just thought, what have I done? I can't, I can't be doing this. I can't be buying all this shit because this is not what I want to be doing. I don't want to be replacing drum parts for people. Uh, just because I have that ability, I don't want to necessarily get my investments tied up in electronic drum equipment at this moment in time. So no harm, no foul, you know, whatever. I'm going to return it all. So that's my confession of the day. Now, what the walking thing was talking about, here's my kick in the butt for the day. We all like to sit. Uh, that's no secret. Um, well, I don't know if you like to sit, but anyways, we sit a lot. That's It's not a healthy lifestyle sitting all the time in front of a computer. And, you know, many of you who like to, you know, say that you're freelance and that you would never go to a day job. Well, let's face it. If you were at a day job, an office job, you would be sitting all the time, most likely sitting in meetings, sitting, typing stuff, whatever. Here's a recommendation for you. And uh, some of this information I'm going to throw at you comes from the website simplemost.com. And I'm going to put that in the show notes. So be sure and check this out. Uh, they're encouraging people to walk at least 20 minutes a day. I'm sure there's many people that are encouraging it, but uh, here's what they say. It gives you uh, an improved mood. And this is all based on studies that, that have been done. It improves your mood and imp increases your energy, lowers your risk of heart disease, uh, helps give you a longer life, uh, lowers your risk of diabetes. They say people who walk have a larger hippocampus, that part of the brain that is responsible for memory and uh, learning. And studies show that a daily walk can help improve spatial memory as well as lower the risk of dementia. So, you know, that's good. It can help with weight loss too. Just 20 minutes a day can help shrink your waistline and burn off calories. So think about that. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can check that out, but uh, just some basic, you know, stuff. So where am I going with this beyond all these health benefits? If you don't like walking, and it just bores you to tears, bring your phone, put on a, put on some music, put on a podcast. You know, I do a, a three mile walk a few times a week where I'll put on a podcast or I'll put on some music. And before you know it, I'm already done with the walk. It's the distraction part of it really, really helps. If you distract yourself during these moments of exercise, you can really uh, get through that exercise and uh, feed your brain at the same time with something that's interesting to you or motivates you uh, musically or whether it's, you know, talk radio or whether it's, you know, a podcast about whatever. You know what I'm saying? You just got to find something to distract yourself uh, from an audio perspective. And uh, of course, this podcast can help. Then get on your walk and go do your walk, you know, and maybe you'll do more than 20 minutes and try to do that every single day. And uh, maybe we'll see a lot more of you around for a lot longer, huh? I think that's a good idea. Before we head on over to our interview with Ryan, I want to uh, encourage you all. Of course, you know, our sponsors help make this podcast possible. We have a good relationship with everybody here. And uh, gearslets.com is one of those folks. Head on over and check out Audio Life, the subform that we sponsor. 
Uh, if you like a lot of the things we talk about here, you can read about them there. Also, head on over to universalaudio.com where uh, they're still doing a bunch of promo stuff, and there's still a lot of great videos up there. Of course, I've mentioned it many, many times before from Jakir and Vance. And, uh, you know, always good stuff to learn, always good stuff to read over there. So be sure and check it out, uaudio.com. So uh, that's it. I'll quit blabbering, but uh, make sure you get those walks in, folks. Get up and, and get your exercise. I think it'll really, really help improve your life. And uh, that's it. Let's do it. Ryan Worsley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. Uh, last time we saw each other, we were in the south of France enjoying a hell of a time. You celebrated a birthday yeah, yeah. What a great experience that was. Obviously, the the hanging out with Chad Blake was a huge part of that. But mm -hmm. as I've said time and time again, what really took it over the top for me is meeting all of you and hearing your stories and knowing about your world and hearing your work, which is excellent. So it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Um, that, that was such an incredible week, the whole experience with Chad and being, you know, in the south of France and um, just seeing so many great producers and engineers from all over the world. Yeah. It's just incredible and so inspiring, too. I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this right. Uh, you are located, first of all, you're in British Columbia. You're in yeah, Coquitlam? Yeah. Coquitlam, that's right. You got it. Oh, my God. I <laughs> said it right. Amazing. Not many people do that. It's usually Coquitlam or... <laughs> Coquitlam. Coquitlam, British Columbia. So tell me about Coquitlam. Tell me, tell me about the area that you're in. It's about uh, 25 to 35 minutes outside of Vancouver, depending on traffic. It's a really nice nice area we I kind of i've been here for probably 15 years now part of the choice about being in coquitlam was related to the housing costs in vancouver i think vancouver is i think the third or second most expensive place to live in the world um wow it's it's pretty insane i think it's new york london vancouver or it was a few years ago anyways when i first decided that i wanted to get into production and, and mixing I, I wanted a studio, and this was the place that seemed the most realistic to to start one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and most people most people kind of like coming out this way. They they get out of the city. It's not quite as busy. The the pace is a little slower out here. Um, so yeah. So is your studio in your house or is it outside of your house? Well, I, I've got two studios. The first one is where I kind of started and that's behind behind the house on the same property it's a detached building and i built i built that studio when when i was first getting started it, it started with just basically one room and i worked out of a, a single room for about a year and then i built on um, a control room and now there's uh, there's an echo chamber and um, some iso booths in in this first studio and then a few years ago um, i took over a space um, just 10 minutes down the road. It's a commercial space and it seemed like the perfect spot for me as, you know, things were growing. I, 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 was, I was definitely outgrowing this this space. So the, the commercial space, which we're calling Studio B, Studio A is the original studio, Studio B is the um, the commercial studio. And um, it's it's got a two bedroom suite upstairs um, with a full kitchen and bathroom. And it works great because I work with a lot of bands from out of town. So they can, they can just kind of stay at the studio and we can kind of just set up camp, you know, make a record or write or whatever we're doing. And since, uh, since taking over the commercial space, the original Studio A has changed a lot because um, 
now I do all, all my mixing out of Studio A, which is where I am now. I flipped the rooms around because the control room was was fairly small originally, and the live room was, was a good size. It was pretty big. So now I've moved my setup into the live room, and I treated it much differently. So it's basically a, a mixing, a really great mixing space with a, a large room, which makes it wow. so much, so much nicer to mix in. I was always struggling with the low end in, in my other control room because cause it wasn't big enough to handle the, the lows. Uh, let's go back to the beginning of Studio A. Sure. James Ivey from Pro Tools Expert was just on the show. And we were talking about uh, building codes in his area in London where he lives. And mm -hmm. I'm curious about any uh, problems that you encountered with the county or the city or uh, how does that work there? In Coquitlam. Well, there's certainly bylaws that need to be adhered by. Um, I was lucky in the sense that the building that I built Studio A in was already it was already built. Um, mm. I don't know if it was if it was completely to code when the, the previous owners built it. When we moved in here, it was already built, so there wasn't a lot of permits and licensing that I had to go through when I built Studio A. And luckily, Studio B was very much built it had basically been renovated for the living quarters upstairs as well as the you know the whole bottom floor had recently been built and it all the permits had just been signed off on right before i purchased it so i really lucked out there um, but i know that there was a it took them years and years to get the final building permits for studio b yeah, the previous owner, it took him two years. Wow. That can be a major it, stumbling block and really hold progress up. Yeah, it really is. Once you can get a space that's, you know, you've got permits for and you're comfortable in it, you know, for me anyways, I just, I just want to stay. And because I, <laughs> it, there's so much, there's so much work that goes into building a studio and doing it properly and doing it to code. Yeah, so I was lucky enough that I didn't have to deal with a lot of that. Just back to Studio A, it was a pre-existing structure. Did you have to run any electrical or change anything to accommodate it being a studio to your liking? Yes, we did have to run um, electrical back here with, I think we ran 220 from the main panel on the house and we ran it back to Studio A and then put a new breaker box in Studio A. That was probably, yeah, that, that was definitely a, a tricky job because... You know, it was a pretty long run and it was a really big BX cable that they were using to get all the power back here. Yeah. I'm glad that we did it right because like I've never blown a breaker <laughs> in Studio A and I can run like, I can run eight amps at a time. It's, it's no issue. You said something that caught my attention there about Studio B. Did you buy the building? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a strata unit. So it's a, it's a, um, a suite within, I think, about 27 it was su suites, I guess. And I, I did. I, I, pr I purchased that suite. Or I, I don't know if it would be called a suite or a... I didn't purchase the whole building because it's huge. But I, I okay. did purchase the, the suite that the studio was in. And okay. Yeah. And my reasoning for that, I had leased it for a year before that. And I, I just saw that, you know, there was a big chunk of money every month just going to out to rent. I really struggled with that especially thinking long-term in the music industry. So I knew that this was a really perfect space for me. And I thought long-term it would make a lot more sense to pay pay off a mortgage as opposed to paying rent every every month. 
with the possibility that that rent could go up. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. The way you're describing it, and tell me if this is a similar situation, like I remember in the uh, early days of looking for a house to buy uh, in the Bay Area, my wife and I were looking at all the all the different options. And one of the options was, is you could do, you if there was a three flat unit, you could buy, you know, the top or the middle or the bottom of a three flat unit. And then the other two units would sell to other people. And that was what we had called a TIC, which was a tenancy in common. It's essentially, you'd have up to three different owners of one building. Is that kind of what's going on here with Studio B? The closest thing I can relate it to would be if you purchased an an apartment in a a complex, you know, you, you own, you own the apartment, but you don't, own the land that it's on necessarily or the strata i guess owns the land does that make sense is that that seems like the same thing essentially yeah yeah i I think it is probably just called something different and in those situations sometimes there can be what we call hoa fees this is of course all tied to a house homeowners association is there kind of a uh are there common costs that all the businesses in that group contribute to well there's monthly strata fees um which which um i think are pretty they're really common in, in Canada, I think. And anyone that lives in a shared, not shared dwelling, but anyone that lives in an apartment or a townhouse um, pays strata fees. And that goes to the maintenance of everything that's outside of your unit. You know, so the parking okay. lot, the roof, the outside of the building. Yeah, so that's definitely a cost that I had to keep in keep in mind when I was making the decision to purchase. When I broke it down, it was certainly more expensive to purchase the building as it was a, to rent it, yeah. but I was thinking long term. You know, sure, it's it's more expensive now, but at least I'm investing in something that will be eventually mine. That's right. And um, of all the interviews I've done on Working Class Audio, it seems that those that are in that position of owning the real estate are really in the best position because ultimately they can always sell the building. They can always sell the the real estate. Mm -hmm. That gains value over time. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how I saw it too. Well, so talk to me about how the business runs. How do you make sure that the mortgage gets paid every month? Because I also notice on the website for the studio and for the audience that is over at uh, echoplantsound.com. So if you get a chance, head on over there. I'll put a link in the show notes for you to check it out. I love how you surround yourself with mats. You have uh, (laughs) Matt and Matthew who work alongside with you. So uh, tell me about that whole relationship and the structure of the business. How do you guys make this work? Sure. Yeah. Um, I definitely have a lot of mats in my life. (laughs) I've got, I've got you right now. Um, And my, my manager, uh, his name is also Matthew. So a lot of mats. I just call them by their last name to keep it, keep it simple. (laughs) Um, It was definitely a, a slow process for me to transition from, you know, essentially being just a guy behind his house making music to having two spaces that are running and that are actually surviving, I guess, doing well. I'll go. I'll maybe go back to the beginning where I was working out of solely out of Studio A on my own. And I had a few interns from time to time and they wouldn't last too long, usually a few months. And I just sort of came to expect that, you know, interns come for a few months and then they take off. But this one intern in particular, Matt, <laughs> he 
he asked me if he could come in and I said, all right, I'll put you in on a trial basis. And he just kept coming. He would sit back there all day long, just watch me mix. And like six months went by, he still kept coming in. And, you know, over that amount of time, he was, he was learning a lot by, from what I was teaching him, what he was just watching uh, through sessions and watching me mix. Eventually, it got to the point where he was really, really capable on his own. And it was really rewarding to see that, to see someone that, you know, came from not really knowing anything to being able to run sessions to be able to get great drum sounds. So I saw a lot of potential in Matt after a few years of working together. Um, and I knew that he wanted to do a lot of recording on his own. He wanted to start branching out doing, um, he, he, he does a lot of rock and metal and hard rock stuff. When the opportunity came to open up another studio, um, I talked to Matt and I, I asked him how he would feel about running it. And um, he, he sounded pretty excited about it. So as I said before, we, we I sort of did it, I was able to do it on a trial basis, which was really nice where, you know, I was leasing, I wasn't locked into a long term with the studio. And I basically hired Matt as uh, the studio manager. So he was handling the day-to-day -day stuff with, with Studio B. And, it, you know, it, it took a while to kind of get things rolling smoothly with that. But now we're at the point where he essentially runs Studio B entirely. You know, I'll, I'll come in from time to time and check in on how things are going. And whenever I'm producing, I'll be working out of Studio B. Without having someone like that to, that, you, that you trust, that you have confidence in, um, I wouldn't have been able to, to take on this endeavor. Yeah. So maybe to get a little bit more specific, I mean, the way that you can make it successful apart from from surrounding yourself with the right sort of team members is to be really forward thinking. I think for me, like I'm not, I'm not planning, you know, next month down the road, I'm, I'm planning like three to four months down the road and trying to make sure that for one, the studio's booked, that there's work coming in. I feel like to be, to sustain yourself in the, in the music industry and in the recording industry, um, particularly, um, you can, you can never get, complacent and just be like ah sweet i'm i'm feeling good here there's work coming in and i feel like whenever whenever i'm in that position and you know things can slow down and it can take a, a little bit of time to get the ball rolling again mm -hmm. making sure that you're you're never getting complacent in 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 your job you know whether it be a producer or an engineer because let's face it like the music industry is is fickle and you have to be yeah constantly constantly um pushing to kind of stick your head out what are you doing to plan that what are you doing to make sure that that three to four months ahead is booked what are some of the strategies you use probably the biggest one is training either interns that are working at the studio or in the past when i would train my engineers i think being in the music industry and making good connections with musicians and people in the industry is so so essential it, it it's not about you know having an ad in a magazine saying hey you know th this is my studio come work with me it's really all about relationships within the industry and uh referrals i think referrals are the biggest way to move forward in the production engineering side of things 
that's what I teach all of my my engineers and interns that come in to eventually work as producers is to make those connections. I think young engineers, producers should be going out to at least one show a week. Go online, find out what bands are playing, listen to them, do some research beforehand. You know, send out messages, say, hey, I love your music, I want to come check you out live, and then meet meet the band and see if if there's a connection there and if, if there's the potential of doing some work together. That's interesting. So you actively message a band and say, I'm going to come and check you out. Can we meet afterwards? That's how I've done things since I started because when I started, no one knew who I was. No one was coming to me. So I just started reaching out to bands. And that's great because you're bringing in work, but it's also... It's also great because you're finding the projects that you are inspired by that sort of you connect with, as opposed to a band coming to you and being like, hey, can you record us? You're not necessarily, you might not necessarily have a, a connection with that style or that music, right? So it, it, it enables you to work on more music that you love. Yeah, that's interesting. In Coquitlam, is there a big live music scene? Uh, not in Coquitlam. I mean, Vancouver is is where the... The live music scene is it's pretty good we don't compete with with toronto with la but there's a a pretty close-knit community of of musicians and and definitely within different genres too you can easily go to two to three you know good shows a week of just of just either local independent bands or or touring independent bands do you target local independent bands or those touring bands or both both and that's part of what was so great with studio b in that you know it's let's say for example a band is uh is, is touring and they're coming through vancouver if you can connect with it with a band like this and say hey do you guys have a few days to like to, to maybe just try a song together you can stay at the studio there's a place to stay and if you have a few days free, why don't you stay at the studio and we'll, we'll do a song? And that band could be from anywhere. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. And I think it, it sort of fills the gap. Like, because I, I definitely know that it's more difficult to, to record a record in a city that you don't live in, right? There's travel fees, there's accommodations. But I feel like you're sort of, with being able to stay at the studio, that's kind of one of the, one of the puzzle pieces that's sort of filled in with that. That's very smart. How far is Coquitlam from Vancouver? 25 to 35 minutes, depending on traffic. Okay. Yeah. That's not bad. Another thing too that's great is that there's a, there's a Skytrain. We have Skytrain in Vancouver. It's like subway, but above ground. And <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty close to, this, to the studio. So if for some reason people don't have vehicles, I can, you know, people can get rides from, from the Skytrain to the studio. Budget-wise, how do you... Do you have set rates for Studio B and and the staff there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's set rates. Like if if a band wants to come in and um, you know record for a few days, there's there's rates that that are are set um, depending on if if you're staying at the studio or if you're just recording. And how do your rates compare to say a studio in Vancouver? They're definitely more competitive, and that's another sort of plus of not being right in the city because the cost of living is a little bit lower and anyone can can contact me for for specific rates but um in general i'd say i'm able to give a you know 15 to or 10 to 20 percent sort of lower rate than i would be able to give in vancouver mm -hmm. which can certainly add up you know over the course of a of a project is it difficult to keep the studio booked on a daily basis it wasn't difficult when I had just one of the studios going, because when I first moved into Studio B, 
uh, Studio A wasn't running at all, so I would do all my mixing and recording. And things were just, they were booked three to four months in advance all the time. So I'd say probably for five years, the studio was constantly booked at least two to three months in advance. And that was that was great in one sense, but it was also hard because if you had a band that you were working with, or so, if you had a band that came to you and said, hey, we we want to do something, can we do something in two or three weeks? Even if I really wanted to, there was, I, I just couldn't because things were so, so busy. The nice thing with the two studios now is that there is more downtime, I guess you could say. It's certainly more of a challenge to keep both studios booked, but the way that I've sort of laid things out budget-wise, you know, I've got a certain amount of days that the studio needs to be booked in order to sort of cover costs and break even. And I know what that number is. And as long as, you know, that certain number of days is booked, I'm feeling good about where things are at. So to answer your question, it's more challenging to to keep both studios booked, but it's it's doable. It's it's not impossible. I think combining the, that forward thinking of networking with artists and just having a team around you, whether it's two people or whether it's five people that you can rely on, that you can that you have confidence in is, is super, super helpful. Like it's almost like a, a community of, of producers or engineers that, that say it's, it's difficult to do on your own, but if you have, you know, a few people that are doing all the right things, it makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Well, the strategies that you, you laid out really have to do with bands that are passing through locally, whether they live there or whether they're touring. Do you do a lot of mixing work for people who don't live there? I do. Yeah, I, I do. <clears throat> I would probably say the past year I've been doing a lot more mixing too. I mean, I'm, I've always done about 30, 30% of my sort of job has been has been just mixing for projects that I don't say produce or or work on at all but that's probably gone up to probably 40 40 percent over the past the past year and part of the reason why i set up studio a this way was because i was doing so much mixing like when i'm when i mix a band from out of town they're not here at the session it's just myself i don't need a huge commercial space to do that out of i just needed a room that sounded really good that was set up the way i wanted it so um, that, that's why this studio A setup is working so well. Do you actively seek artists out who don't live there to try to get those mixing gigs? Absolutely. Yeah. All, okay. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just part of that sort of forward thinking mentality that I was talking about before. Usually in the evenings, I'll just be on my computer and I'll be checking out bands, whether it's on Spotify or or links from you know, from because people send me projects, uh, just email me a link and say, "Hey, these guys are cool. Check them out," um, and I'll listen to them. And if if I if I really like their music, I'll certainly. Um, I've got a a manager that um, that does a lot of the outreach. Whereas, um, you know, I'll if, if if I find an artist that I really like, I'll I'll get him to to reach out sort of on my behalf. And um, it, it's it's a lot of work, like when you're when you're first starting out because you're you're reaching out to so many people and a lot of people just don't even respond or you know the the return rate is pretty low at first but it's just i guess it's kind of like sales you just kind of keep pushing forward and like you'll you'll send out 10 emails and and these aren't like these aren't generic emails like spam emails they're actual like personal emails where you listen to the music i'll comment on 
a particular song that I like, what I like about it. So they know that I'm not just sending them a spam email, like a copy and pasted email. It's actually, you know, a personal email. Um, and I think that makes a big difference. Tell me about your manager and, and tell me about how that came to be and what's the structure of that? Sure. He's an incredible guy, um, for one. He's, he's a very, very smart marketing guy. He's got the, kind of the, the two sides that I see are crucial to, to succeed in the music industry, um, which is the creative side and the, the industry side. Part of the reason why it, um, our relationship works out so well is that he's more than just a manager of the business side of things. He's like, I, I, I've worked with him in the past as an artist. He, like, I, tr I trust his opinion when it comes to like the artistic side of, of uh, things, uh, which I think is really crucial because, and I'm not, I'm not trying to slag any managers out there, but a lot of them are super focused on the business side of things, which is great, but they don't have a clue when it comes to what is actually good music or what is current or what will um, succeed. And I think having both of those sides is, is super crucial for me anyways. How did you decide that you were going to have a manager and how did that conversation start? Um, it had been something I had been thinking about for quite a long time. I think it started when I got to the point where I was reaching out to these bands and I knew that what I could contribute to them was like, was going to be strong and that they would most likely really like what I do, but I couldn't reach out to them in the proper way. Like either I had to contact their manager or I was, I could only find a Facebook link. And it just felt really strange to me to be reaching out to these, these bands where it just, it just made, it made me appear like I was sort of a guy just out of like recording school that wants to work with you. And, and it didn't come across um, accurately. That was a big part of why I felt like a manager was going to be useful. I mean, I, you know, built the studio with, with the help of my wife, who's, who's incredible. She's a huge part of the sort of Echo Plant team as well. But like I, I did a lot of the business side of things on my own for a long time. So I, I can do it. And that was why it took a long time to sort of be sold on the idea of a manager because I could do it, but it doesn't mean I need to do it. And being able to have someone that you can rely on for invoicing and for reaching out to artists for negotiations, it's a huge weight off, off your shoulder. And um, it's probably something that I would recommend every producer to, to look into. I mean, did you just sit down over a drink one day and say, hey, do you want to be my manager? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's about how it happened. There's a, the, the thing with producer-managers. Typically, producer-managers take a pretty large percentage of, of everything off the top. Like, you know, your, your mixing fees, your production fees, your songwriting royalties. Uh, and this is typically, I mean, it's not across the board, but, but it, you know, basically everything that produce, the producer is bringing in, in a lot of cases, the producer-manager is going to take a fairly large really large cut of that and when I found this out before I was with a manager I started thinking about it and thought well I've been bringing in all this work on my own for so long and now to kind of hand it over to a manager who's just automatically going to take 20% of or, or 15 or 20% of what I'm making it, it's just a hard it's a hard pill to swallow yeah so that was part of the reason why I chose to go with someone that wasn't, you know, part of a, a large, you know, producer manager company. Cause you know, there, there's a lot of them out there and a lot of them are really, really great. And they, 
they do super well for their artists. But I chose sort of the the boutique approach, I guess you could say, where I already already knew that Matthew was a super musical guy. I also knew that he was super successful in the marketing side of things. And he had just kind of started working for a management management company called Trophy Club, um, which is a relatively uh, new producer management company in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just, the the timing worked out perfect, but it, but it essentially was just a get together. Hey, do you want to, do you want to try managing me? Hmm. And I think, I think especially for, for people that haven't had a manager before trying a bit of like a, a courting period or or whatever you call it is really, really helpful as opposed to being like, okay, you want me to manage you? Let's, you know, let's sign this contract and we'll, we'll get things rolling. Just like, you know, forming a, a, a strong relationship with someone over the course of a, a few months or a year and then deciding if, if it's going to work for you is, is kind of key for me. Ryan Worsley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break with our friends from Audio-Technica and just remind you to stop by audio-technica.com. Of course, they have a wide variety of headphones, microphones, turntables, and a lot of various products to help you get the audio job done and uh, get it done at a good price and get it done with quality. So be sure and stop on over to audio-technica.com and check them out. Yeah. Let's get back to it. Ryan Worsley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You mentioned your wife being involved. Tell me about the world of uh, the work-life balance between the two of you and uh, how that works yeah. to keep the relationship solid. Sure. Well, we'll say that I I wouldn't be where I am today without my wife. She she's she's the reason that that I've been able to succeed in the industry so far. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I give her a huge a huge shout out. She's been so supportive of me from the beginning. Um, when we we first got married, and I was making music out of our apartment in the spare bedroom recording my you know recording my own band you know she she supported me because i think she saw some she saw potential there and she saw talent there you know w- without that it, it would never have worked so i'm extremely lucky in that sense I, I have a lot of colleagues and friends that that have partners that are either just they're not super involved they're, they're in you know their, their job is is completely different it's not related to the music industry um and or they just don't have a desire to sort of be involved with it and which is mm-hmm. which is pr- pretty normal and, and understandable. But Al- my wife Alana is she, she's a music teacher. Um, that, that's her her job. Um, she, she's a high school band teacher, and she's really really good at it. And we've we've connected over music since we met because we met at music school. Um, we were both studying classical music. We enjoy the same kind of music. So so it was it was really perfect in that sense. You know, there are certainly some tough time or tr- tricky times. I guess I could say when you know, you're in business, so to speak, with your partner, you know, you spend a lot of time together. You know, we, we find ourselves sort of both on our computers at night, sitting on the couch together, doing work stuff, you know, whether it's website or reaching out to artists or applying for grants or awards or whatever. But, but overall, like she has just been a, a really, really huge asset to, to the success of, of the studio so far. That's great. That's mm-hmm. uh, solid yeah i i sort of feel like i'm i'm just so so lucky to have these people around me my engineer and studio manager matt 
my my manager, <laughs> Matt Matthew, and my my wife and the the interns um, that are at the studio. I just feel like I'm I have such a a team of people that is so supportive and yeah I'm just I'm just really lucky that to have them. Yeah, and once once you have those people in your life and you realize the importance of them, do you put a lot of thought and effort into how to make sure that they're happy and that they're that that they're not going to leave mm-hmm. the fold of what's going on? I do. I, I certainly think about it a lot and I'm I'm sure I could probably think about it more. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's 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 easy to sometimes get complacent, but I'm certainly forward thinking in that sense as well. And that I do realize how lucky I am that these people in my life are crucial to, to my success, you know, keeping, keeping the boat steady and keeping things, keeping the morale really, really positive at all times is, is really crucial and really key. Um, Cause yeah, you, you, no one wants to come to, come to work if, you know, if, if the, the atmosphere at, Yet their job is is negative. That actually is a great transition. I was going to ask you, how do you keep the drama to a minimum? How do you make sure that you do have a positive work environment there at the studio and and between everybody? Well, I think um, having like heart to heart chats with people on a regular basis mm-hmm. is really important. You know, if I think making sure that you don't let little things build up into resentment is really important. Yeah, if you think about it like, and I've always used this analogy with bands that I've played in in the past, and, and it's the same way with, with sort of the studio team. It, you're basically in a marriage. And yeah, um, if you consider it that way, you know, if you're trying to always think about other people's, how other people are feeling, making sure that your actions aren't um, affecting them in a negative way or just like just, just your reactions too aren't affecting them in a negative way is uh is really helpful what one thing i don't understand or am not very clear on is canadian taxes just in the healthcare debate alone in the united states you know there's always you know some very extreme views and when we talk about it at least you know opposition always talks about well you know sure we could be like canada but then we'd have to pay you know crazy taxes and and mm-hmm. we couldn't, we'd be giving away all of our money. Can you shed some light on that and how the Canadian taxes relate to your business and how you, how you keep the money coming in and, and, and yet doing what is required of you as a Canadian citizen from a tax perspective? Yeah. Um, well, I will say that um, owning a small business in, in Canada is, is really um, beneficial for, for tax purposes because you're able to write you know everything studio related off i know that it's pretty similar in in the states but yeah like rent you know electrical everything that's that i'm putting into the studio is is a tax write off and that makes a huge difference in how much tax i end up paying at the end of the year um i'm not i'm not really sure how to answer that and i'm not really sure exactly how to phrase it either it's something that crossed my mind people in the us are always talking about you know other countries and their healthcare systems and what that means to their bottom line at the end of the day and I, right. you know yeah well in terms of healthcare i mean i i love canada's healthcare <laughs> it's it's incredible like like i i've i've never known anything else so mm-hmm. the fact that the fact that you know 
U.S. citizens living in the States can't just walk into a doctor's office and get treated for anything. This is, is mind-boggling to me because I've never known anything else. Like when I need to go to the doctor, I just go to the doctor. It's, it's just something <laughs> that happens. Um, well, and, and, and so as a direct result, you know, usually here in the U.S., it's the, it's the businesses, small and large, that provide the means to which uh, an employee gets health care. Mm-hmm. So, so for you, that's not something you have to worry about because all the folks that work with you have Canadian health care. Yeah, we don't have a health care plan at Ecoplan. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, everyone that works for Ecoplan, you know, are already, if they're living in Canada and they're Canadian citizens, they already do have health care. It, it's mandatory. Like you can't not have health care in, in Canada. And, and it does it does cost money to, it, it's called it's called MSP, Medical Services Plan. And that's sort of the, you know, the minimum coverage that you can have in Canada. And I think it's about a, I think it costs, it, it's dependent on your um, your income, but it goes anywhere from like $20 a month up to $100 a month. And you, you pay for that. And in turn, you know, you have unlimited access to hospital and doctors. It, it doesn't pay for prescriptions. So you have to mm-hmm. pay for your own prescriptions. But a doctor's visit, hospital visit is is covered through MSP. Interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. That's, that could be a whole nother topic on its own. <laughs> um, what is your relationship with, with money and money management? You have a, a lot of responsibility with uh, the studio and you've got people working with you. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you're, you're trying to pay the bills like everybody else. Yeah. So, uh, do you have a particular philosophy or way of dealing with money? A, a general approach? Um, yeah, don't spend more than you have. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a big one. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like when I when I first started the studio, like I could have taken out a you know hundred thousand dollar loan and started, you know, building, building this huge space, but I didn't, um, what I did was I, I kept my sort of day job, so to speak. I was a, I was a music teacher. I kept doing that and I spent a few years, uh, recording on the side and then the money that I made from recording, I'll put back into the studio. I'll keep working my, my regular job. Just kept doing that until I had accumulated enough stuff and I was a, I was able to kind of transition into doing it full time and that that I think was a a smart move looking back on it because I know a lot of people that have tried to get into sort of the uh, into production and into engineering and you know where they they take a big leap at once and and it's it doesn't work so that's one thing that that I, I think um, has been part of my ability to continue sustaining myself and the studios yeah but I think I think what I what I said before about like if you don't have the money to spend don't spend it it, it's, it might sound really simple but um, and and in terms of money management yeah there there's a lot of sort of um, there's a lot of that that goes on and it's very it's very time consuming it's probably my least favorite part of the in of the job is kind of balancing books and making um, you know, making payments, making sure you receive payments. Yeah, I, I, I don't like that part of it, <laughs> but but it's it's super important, uh, obviously. Yeah, I definitely keep on top of it. You know, bills are paid on time. I make sure that there's a contingency in the studio budget 
for repairs to equipment, any sort of emergencies. Like we had a we had a leak in the studio um, a year ago, I guess. There was a, a big snowfall and the roof leaked a little bit, and that was uh, that was a bit of a nightmare. But luckily, we were prepared for it. The insurance company covered covered everything, and no gear was damaged. But I'm always yeah, I'm always thinking about like what what happens if what happens if you know for some reason the studio goes un, unbooked for a month and you know there there is some sort of reserve contingency there in in case of things like that you know an emergency for some reason really low low booking for for a little bit okay prior to where you're at in the world of recording where what's your background where where what has led up to where you're at today with your current thing with your current recording career I started playing music when I was 11. I played in a Christian heavy metal band. That was my first my first band. And then throughout my high school years I I played in just lots of lots of different bands, some folk bands, some kind of indie rock. I grew up kind of playing a lot of indie rock stuff and alt rock. Out of high school I went I took a 2-year diploma program um, to study horticulture, like to study turf management, which is basically like working on a golf course. And mm-hmm. looking back on it, I have no idea why I ever chose to do that. Um, I hated it. It wasn't, I mean, I was basically picking weeds all day long for not very <laughs> good pay. Um, and yeah, it took me probably two years to realize that I would be miserable if I did this for the rest of my life. So I, I went back to music school, studied classical music, and that's kind of where I, I met my wife. And that was kind of the, I think the, the beginning of, of doing music as a, as a job. And what, where did the transition happen from music to producing and engineering? It happened right around the time I, I built the first studio. I mean, when I, when I built the first studio A, like I was, I wasn't really working on projects other than my own bands, but I knew for one that I wanted, like I was completely obsessed with production and recording. I also knew that at the time I was teaching music lessons. So at the very least, I could use this studio as a as a place to teach music lessons, which I did for a while. So it was kind of a slow process between, it was about 12 years ago, I guess, 12, 13 years ago, between teaching music lessons and doing production recording. Um, and the reason I actually started teaching music lessons was because I never got hired back at the city for, for my groundskeeping job. Um, and I was, I was just married. We were in an apartment and I I got the call saying, I'm not coming back. And I was like, Oh man, what am, what am I going to do? Like my wife was finishing her degree. So I was the person that was working. I just, um, I started teaching music lessons, but nobody was coming. So I took, I took these big pieces of like plywood or this white kind of board and I would spray paint I had a little template and I would spray paint guitar lessons and my phone number and I just hammer them up on telephone poles all over the city and and within a few months I had I think 60 students um that I was teaching and um so that was that was how I was able to sort of fund my my recording obsession wow interesting <laughs> I got in trouble for that, though. I had to pay a few fines because apparently you're not allowed to hammer up advertising on telephone poles in Coquitlam. Just to be clear, 
when you said that, I was ima imagining like big pieces of plywood, but yeah, two feet by two feet. And I would take a ladder and I would just climb up the telephone pole you know, about 15 feet and I would hammer it up there. And then I'd have to get it high enough because the city guys could come by with a rake and they could rip them down. So I had to get a little bit creative with how to keep them up there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's some persistence on your part. I was determined to make money doing music one way or another. So it's been several months now since uh, you and I have come back from um, France and uh, doing Chad's uh, Mix with the Masters program. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, obviously you, you, you talked about how in, in our Mix with the Masters episode, you talked a little bit about, you know, why you were there and what you were taking away from it. But now in retrospect, this many months after the fact, what are your thoughts about it and how has it affected your your recording practice? That's a good question. Well, it's certainly something that continues to be a source of inspiration for me, which I think is awesome. Like just thinking back to that time and how I felt and how I think we all felt being there can sort of, if you're feeling uninspired, you know, at a particular time in your life or in the morning when, you're, when you've got to write a song or something, um, I, I, I just tend to think back to that time and those, uh, just that sense of community and like I said, I felt like I was at, at summer camp again as a kid. And I think, you know, obviously we all, w when we all came back from that, I'm sure we were all trying Chad's techniques, you know, tr you know the, stu the stuff that he showed us really, you know, it, it, um, it was new to a lot of us. And we, we were trying, trying to do, okay, Chad does it this way. This is how, this is how it's done. So let's try it and see if it works. And obviously with most people, it's not going to sound the same as what, Chad was doing, but finding your own unique twist on that and how to make it work for you, I think, and for, for me in particular has, has been really great. You know, like some of the, the template stuff that we had, um, when he was kind of showing us how we mixed it's that I think it was a really great starting point to, to try to see what's going to work for you. And then I'll, I'll go back to, to, to the whole, um, his whole concept of throwing a banana out in front of you just the slip on it. Um, that's something that I think that's probably the biggest thing I took from, from the whole week was just not being afraid to make mistakes. And looking back on my career, some of the best records I ever made started from a huge mistake, whether it be on my end or the musician's end or the song itself. Like I, I did a song a while back for a girl and she couldn't sing, she couldn't play or sing anything actually. Um, this was a while ago. And uh, she came in and sung me a, a melody and I basically had to write the song around this melody, but she was tone deaf. So I essentially had to kind of guess what her melody was, but she was changing keys between the verse and the chorus and the bridge. They were completely different keys. Um, so I had to create this instrumental that worked with this melody that she was singing. And at the time I was just ripping my hair out, but when I listen back to the song, it's so unique because it's this weird chord change going into the chorus that I never ever would have thought of if I was writing a song. So looking back on it, yeah, it's it's um, those those situations, those those problems that can a lot of times create some some magic. Yeah, that that uh, once again the camaraderie and the the summer camp esque feeling of being there was. I have to say, after I was done, it, it gave me a lot more confidence in general about things. I didn't feel like it just strengthened the concept of Chad is Chad and there is no other Chad. 
mm-hmm. and we all are our own people and we all know what we need to do essentially to follow our own path. And I have to say, I, I thought, well, you know, I probably, I don't think I'd probably do one of those again, just because I, you know, I don't know if it would, if I would learn as much and, and I've come to change my mind a bit on that and think that in, if the opportunity, if I, if I wanted to create the opportunity to do that again, uh, I, I might go ahead and do that, you know, mm-hmm. to, to go back and, and try, you know, somebody else like Andrew Sheps and, yeah. you know, a different group of people, obviously. Yeah, totally. It'd be a whole new, whole new group of people. I'm sure there'd probably be one or two, probably the, the uh, return client customers. Cause it <laughs> Eduardo. Like, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I've thought about that as well. I think if I went back, I'd definitely want to, um, there's a few guys in particular that I'd want to kind of learn from. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I actually, I, I, I get a little bit giddy inside thinking about going back for another one. It's all, uh, quite the package. I mean, just to be there in the South of France, you know, we were there in the summertime. I don't know what the wintertime would be like, but mm-hmm. I certainly enjoyed the summertime aspect of it. Well, it couldn't be any worse than Vancouver winters or San Francisco winters. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for, uh, for being on the show. It's great to see you. Great to chat with you. And, uh, I wish you continued success here in the future with all of your endeavors and, uh, appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah. Th- thanks, Matt. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed, enjoyed chatting with you. Hope to do it again soon. Absolutely. Uh, and if you're ever in the Bay area, please, obviously you have to look me up. You have to let me know you're here. Oh, I will for sure. Will you give me a tour? I could give you a small tour. Yeah. <laughs> I could, because a tour of the Bay area could last for a full-on week. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Um, Take care. Okay, you too. See ya. See ya. Ryan Worsley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. I want to thank our sponsors, of course, for helping make Working Class Audio possible. That's, of course, uh, Gearslets.com, Lawton Audio, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Focal Monitors. And uh, that's about it. All right, we're out of time. So we want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And I want to thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Make sure you tell all your friends about us and check us out on social media and be sure to visit workingclassaudio.com. And until then, like I always say, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.